everyone, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Surface. I'm Brian Levinson. I created this podcast because I love talking with interesting people to find out about their story. We dive deep and find out about their journey and how that journey has developed their mindset specifically for performance. And today we get to go beyond the surface with Ron Paul. Ron serves as a CEO and chairman of the board for Eagle Bank here in Washington, D.C. He also has a big real estate company. As you'll find out, he invests in buildings all over the area. And in it, with his involvement with Eagle Bank, he travels all over the country representing the company since they are a public company. Ron also is a philanthropist. He starts off and he'll talk about his involvement with cancer and some of the stuff that he has done throughout his life to raise funds to fight cancer. And he also is very passionate about fighting kidney disease, which you'll find out as he'll tell his story uh, throughout this conversation as well. Everybody that knows Ron in this community would probably describe him as a mensch. He's someone who treats people the right way. He always seems to have a smile on his face. And he's just a classy, classy individual. He's someone who I've always looked up to as a child growing up in the area. And I know a lot of people in this community just think so highly of him. He's a man of character. He's a man of integrity. And he's also super successful and competitive. He doesn't back away from the idea of wanting to make money and, and wanting to be successful. And he'll talk about his definitions for success, his definition for leadership, how he values culture, and all of those different aspects that make him unique and make his company unique as well. Uh, Ron is somebody who I think you'll enjoy hearing from. He has a story. He'll talk about some of his adversity. I didn't know this until we talked today, but he also has a sports background, uh, specifically with soccer. And Ron is just a tremendous human being who is successful no matter how you look at success. So as we go beyond the surface with Ron, I encourage you to go beyond the surface with yourself as well. And without further ado, I present to you Ron Paul. Ron, why don't you start just... Give us an idea of what life was like for you as a kid. What was your family like? Uh, where'd you grow up? All that good stuff. I uh, grew up uh, on Long Island, New York. I'm sure a lot of people could get that from my tone. It's not, it's not that much of an not, accent. Not You've that assimilated, bad, huh? yeah. Not that bad. 40 years later, I finally accomplished it. Uh, grew up on Long Island, uh, Oceanside, uh, known for Nathan's Hot Dogs. Um, grew up a uh, middle-class family, mom and dad. Um, there were four kids. I was the oldest. And uh, just, it was a great, great life. Uh, a lot of love, a lot of care, a lot of close relationships with uh, aunts, uncles, cousins that all lived by. Uh, so it was, it was wonderful. Being the oldest, any more responsibility, anything with the birth order, or uh, was it just sort of normal for you and your sibling? Well, I'm sure if I lied down on a couch right now, they would deal, uh, they, would de- they would go pretty deep on that. I, you know, I... I don't know whether it was being the oldest. I don't know whether it's DNA. I, I know that uh, you have uh, some real opinions on that. Um, but uh, it, certainly I was always the leader. I was always uh, uh, the aggressive one. I was always the one who was entrepreneurial. Uh, even to this day, my wife uh, teases me back in college. I was. She always said I was 40 before I was 20. And um, it was just, just always part of me. It was uh, even... I remember back in junior high school and high school, I, I played... Uh, Played soccer in uh, uh, junior high school, high school, a little bit in college, and I uh, was captain of my team and just the leader of the team, and it was just something that just came naturally to me and something I really enjoyed mentoring. Even even younger kids, uh, when I was in high school, I did a mentoring program for younger kids, and in college did the same thing. So it's just been part of me forever. Leadership is that something you feel like you're born with, or you think it's sort of where are you on nature versus nurture when it comes to leadership? 
Um, I, I think you're born with it. I, I really do. I think that uh, you have it. You have the fire in your belly to be a leader, and it's something that you you grow with. Certainly, as time goes on, you 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 learn to expand on it and uh, exploit it if that's what what you're focused on. But it's been in my belly for a long time. Is are there moments that you can remember people cultivating your leadership, whether it's a coach or a teacher or a parent that sort of said, "Hey, Ron." we expect more from you or you use the word being aggressive or entrepreneurial. Were there people that tugged on that concept when you were younger? You know, I, I think as the oldest, uh, my dad was my mentor. Uh, my dad uh, uh, supported uh, six of us. Uh, my dad worked two jobs. So I'm sure that uh, somewhere deep down, it was always my, my desire to help him as much as I could. And if uh, that was on the financial end, by, by working a job, paper route, whatever else I did, I, th I think I always felt like I was helping. Um, so I, I think that was really the deep down inside, that was my driving motivation was, was, uh, was to help him. So responsibility, obligation, or how would you phrase that? I would say responsibility. I felt as the, not necessarily just as the oldest, but just as a child that saw my dad work as hard as he did. Uh, I think that the responsibility that I felt in trying to assist in any way I can, and it was, again, way more than just the $1.85 an hour that I earned uh, uh, when I worked in a clothing store. Um, it was way more than that. It was trying to help my, my brothers and sister in any way that I could. So it was just, just the gut responsibility that I just felt. What did Dad do? And, and, and walk me through what Mom and Dad were like as humans as well. Um, my dad was a, uh, a sales manager for a, uh, a liquor wholesaler. Uh, he was in the liquor industry uh, for, for his whole life. Uh, mom was the uh, toughest job around, being a mom. And uh, later on, mom uh, uh, took a job uh, in a jewelry store. Uh, so my dad was, was, uh, worked two jobs. At night, he worked uh, in, a, uh, in a liquor store. So, but, but I will tell you, there's nothing I could tell you today that I didn't have as a child, uh, despite uh, his, uh, his working. And you mentioned playing soccer. Were you, were you playing any, any other sports, or, or what got you into soccer? I uh, played soccer, played basketball. Uh, I was always a tall kid, um, so basketball was a natural. And um, soccer I just loved. I just loved the physical side to soccer. Uh, I loved the uh, athleticism that you had to have in soccer. I still to this day think that some of the greatest athletes are soccer players. And um, just uh, I'm, I'm still the guy who Sunday morning watches, uh, watches soccer on TV no matter what language is being broadcasted in. Are you Engli English Premier League, Spanish, doesn't Italian? Doesn't make a difference. You just like watching the game. Just, just any of these great athletes with a soccer ball, men, women, doesn't make a difference. It is interesting because I've gotten more into soccer over the last couple of years. I started working with DC United, and people don't realize the fitness and the physicality that comes with soccer. I think they think of it as a game where you can't touch each other and it's not very physical, but being around those guys and seeing how much they run, they run like 10 or 11 miles in a game. Um, and just the fitness and physicality of it is amazing. And then the mental side of the game is also interesting because they have so many options with the ball. So it's one of the few sports where you can go backwards, you can go side to side, you can go forward. So creativity is a premium in that sport. Uh, but like any sport, if they dribble too much or they become selfish with that creativity, then they ostracize their teammates and their teammates all of a sudden aren't going to go for a run and play ahead and they're going to start walking a little bit. 
Um, so the mental side of soccer is really interesting. What was it like for you? What type of player were you when you were in high school, and what was soccer like for you? Well, I, I made it easy as far as the options. 11 miles for me was way too much, so I decided to become a goalie. I figured that was going to be your answer. <laughs> so they say that goalies have a screw loose, so tell me about how your screw was a little loose in I, high school. No question about it. I, you know, when you, when you have some of these guys that are just – Holding down on you with a soccer ball, kicking that ball pretty hard, you've got to have a little bit of a screw loose. I was, again, I was tall, I was a big kid, so, it, but it was, I just loved it. I just loved the anticipation. I loved, you know, again, being in the goal, you, you really were the quarterback to a lot of the guys that were in front of you, trying to tell them where to go and where to move and where to be. Uh, so, uh, again, I'm sure deep down inside, there was part of that leadership part too. But it was, I just think it's an incredible sport. I mean, you see some of these athletes, and not only the shape that they're in, but the, the tenacity that they have, the intensity they have. Is, I just think it's a wonderful sport. And what were you like as a basketball player? Average. Uh, certainly much better. Uh, I had to, actually I had a scholarship to play uh, uh, soccer. Uh, unfortunately, tore my, uh, my uh, 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 part of my knee out, so never went to uh, Clemson. Uh, I say, say unfortunately, but it was very fortunate because I wound up going to Maryland and loving that. I've had people that went to Maryland on here, and uh, I had Leron Prophet who played basketball for Maryland, and Leron was like, yeah, Maryland, the greatest university in, in the planet. Um, but so you were a really good soccer player. I didn't know that about you. You you're being recruited to play at a, a high level. Uh, you tear your knee out. What was that like for you? It was devastating, devastating. I, I mean, I can tell you that, that I... I played soccer seven days a week, uh, indoor, outdoor. Uh, I, I just, it was just, I mean, we used to go on family vacations and I would pack my soccer ball before I would do anything else. So it was, uh, I, I played uh, some of the greatest stories was, uh, 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 there was a, a league called the German American Soccer League uh, up in New York and uh, played a lot at Yankee Stadium. And, and we played, uh, you know, kids from all over the state, uh, Bronx, Queens, you know, here I was a, uh, you know, a Long Island guy playing soccer against some of these kids in the Bronx that were just unbelievable. So it was great. It was it was a truly a wonderful experience. And walk me through what it was like to lose your knee and, and see that sort of make a left turn and, and end up in Maryland. It was devastating. I mean, it was devastating because it was my life. And uh, I was really looking forward to going to Clemson. And then I blew my knee out. And uh, and that was really it. And I think that I think that it was a, it was an awakening for me, too, that I, there was more life out there than just soccer. And uh, in retrospect, the responsibilities and the love I had at Maryland was uh, was just awesome. But it was it was devastating. And were you a sports fan growing up? You just mentioned Yankee Stadium and going there to play soccer. Uh, but were you growing up as a Yankee fan? What was it like growing up on the island from a sports standpoint? Were you a fan or were you more into playing? You know, I, I always say people from New York they were they were stadium fans. They were they were New York Giant football and Yankees, or they were New York Jets and Mets. And and I was certainly a Yankee Stadium fan. Although I will tell you that the uh, that the knee doctor that I saw for probably about two years was a guy by the name of James Nicholas, and uh, James Nicholas was uh, was Joe Namath's uh, uh, doctor. So it was it was tough to tell him that I was a New York Giant fan, but I was a New York Giant fan through and through. Hopefully, you still took care of your knee and, and you ended up okay. So you you head off to Maryland, you you head off the island. Uh, what values uh, principles did you take with you from the island as you go off to to college? Brian, I, you know, again, I, I hate to keep pushing it, but but the leadership part was something that I just was obsessed with, even even as a freshman in college. Um, probably, and I could say it today, at 61 years old, 
probably the best experience that I ever had. And, and a driving force was a, uh, a fundraising event that took place at University of Maryland that my fraternity uh, sponsored. It was a dance marathon. And um, it was the uh, benefit of the American Cancer Society. I had an uncle that was unfortunately dying of cancer, and I got involved in this fundraising event. Um, my sophomore year, it was always run by a senior, uh, but my sophomore year, I elevated myself to be asked to be chairman of, uh, of this fundraising event. And we had raised uh, about $15,000 the year before. The first year I raised, it was $40,000, something that I'm very, very proud of. And to this day, I uh, will tell you that the leadership skills that I developed uh, back at 19 years old was, uh, was pretty extensive. Here I was a 19-year-old kid, uh, but meeting with the governor, meeting with many political people, business people, fundraising people. Uh, I was uh, the youngest person to uh, serve on the National Board of the American Cancer Society. So it was something that I've always been proud of, and I, and I look at the skills that I uh, got from the dance marathon for somebody that never danced. Uh, but somebody that uh, learned an awful lot is, is certainly a memory that I'll never forget. And for those that don't know about Dance Marathon, um, I was talking to my buddy the other day, went to Penn State. I think that's where it started. Well, it's a great story. Until May. And we didn't rehearse this, but uh, when when uh, Penn State didn't have a Dance Marathon, huh? and um, uh, the year I graduated, 1978, uh, the uh, bunch of uh, alumni from Penn State came down to Maryland uh, to work with me, and I, I spent about six months with them on working. I actually wrote a manual wow. on dance marathons. Again, you got to remember, this is a guy who has two left feet. Uh, so I wrote a, I wrote a manual on, uh, on dance marathon, and um, Fayetteville, North Carolina presented it, and Penn State was part of that, and since then, Penn State has just absolutely taken over the dance marathon. Se 72 hours of perpetual motion, So we said. So before we go forward, so I had no idea about that, and I'll give Drew Carr a shout-out. I was literally talking to Drew Carr, who you know as well, um, about Penn State Thon is what they call it. So walk that back for me a little bit. So at Maryland, you guys were doing that. Were you the only ones doing that at the time? So back, back uh, probably seven, eight years before I did the dance marathon, it was the Jerry Lewis dance marathon, and they did it for muscular dystrophy. And then, uh, I guess... Uh, at Maryland. At Maryland. And uh, same, same concept, although it was 54 hours uh, of, of, dance, uh, of dance time. And just so people are clear and they have the image in their head, you are literally on your feet for that entire time, and you are going out and raising money to support, kind of like if you're running a marathon and you want to get someone to support you doing it, they'll go out and they'll raise money for me to then dance for 72 hours or exactly. 54 hours. Exactly. So, so people went out and, and raised money, got contributions, parents, family, uh, roadblocks, all the different stuff that they did to raise money. And um, so then uh, a couple of years before I, I, my freshman years, they changed it to the American Cancer Society, and then I changed it to 72 hours. But it, it, you, you can't imagine the amount that's involved in that. First, it's, it's coordinating a stadium for this, it's uh, we had 150 dancers that the coordination of how do they, you know, everything from from ace bandages to Ben Gay to food to drinks, all of which we had donated. Uh, McDonald's was a big uh, supporter of it. Uh, back then, they had uh, Hungry Herman's, which is a big uh, eating area uh, at Maryland that donated all the food. So, but that was what I did. I mean, I was out there all the time looking to raise money. So it was it was a great leadership. And by the way. You know, you have to remember you're dealing with 18, 19-year-old guys that the last thing they want to do 
is volunteer their time to a charity. Much rather be out partying and have a good time. But it, it, again, that was a whole motivational side that I worked with with these kids. Who introduced you to it, and and what drew you to that? I know you used the word leadership, but why at 18, 19 years old, as a freshman in high school or freshman in college, are you going toward that opportunity? Well, it, it, a, a long story that I'll make shorter, but um, so my, my sophomore year I got involved. My fraternity had done it for a couple of years, and uh, Phi Sigma Delta was a fraternity. We were part of the ZBT, um, uh, a fraternity. Um, and and the, my, my uh, second semester freshman year got involved in it. I chaired it my sophomore year. Uh, I chaired it my junior year. And um, I was going to turn the reins over to uh, a, a guy a year younger than me, and believe it or not, he developed unfortunately cancer, uh, and and uh, passed away at a very young age. And um, I decided to do it one more year. So it was it was really my college life that that I had spent uh, organizing. And I will tell you, fast forward though, where you know you talk about how when you really work hard, you never know what it's going to lead to is when I graduated college, I had an accounting degree and had, uh, fortunately, some offers for some of the big accounting firms up in New York. Um, and the uh, uh, president of the American Cancer Society was a real estate guy and had offered me a job. Uh, and at that point, I said, you know, I really want to go back to New York. Joey and I were going to get married, so we went back to New York. Ultimately, two years later, he continued to stay in touch with me. I stayed in touch with him. Uh, he said that bookkeeping job back at uh, my real estate company is still open. And if you'd like it, I'd love you to uh, uh, consider it. And sure enough, in 1980, I took him up on the offer, and Joy and I moved from uh, New York back to uh, to Washington. And and I worked for the guy that I worked for really hard for four years on a volunteer basis, but now I got paid for it. There's been a common theme. I've interviewed probably 30 people for this podcast, and a common theme happens that when people do good, they often end up doing well. And I'm curious how you toggle doing good with doing well. Brian, I, I, I can tell you, uh, whether it was 19 running the dance marathon or 61 being chairman of Eagle Bank, um, it, it's all about hard work, it's all about leadership, it's all about giving everything you have, and my attitude always has been is that if I do that, it feels really, really good, and you never know where it's going to come and, and, and where it's going to take you, and uh, I can just tell you from my story, whether it was the dance marathon, whether it was uh, uh, being a bookkeeper, uh, for this uh, small real estate company, whether it was Eagle Bank, it, the, the priority was always a leadership and working hard, and then whatever blossomed from there was just gravy. I want to go back to the word leadership because that's a word you've used throughout. How do you define it? How do you think about it? Uh, just give us some insight into what you think about leadership. Everybody, everybody views leadership in a different way. Uh, I view leadership as that you need, you have a responsibility as, a, as an American, as a human being, to be able to show certain skills, mentor people, but take on responsibility where others don't. And, and being a leader, I think, and, and fortunately having had a certain level of success, the responsibility that I feel so strongly about in becoming and continuing that leadership role, leadership has changed over the 61 years. Uh, I spend more and more time right now on the mentoring side. But I, I think that, again, we all have a responsibility of becoming a leader. And I don't care whether you're 19, 15, or 61. Um, and, and I can tell you that both at Maryland, I'm now on the board of the business school at Maryland, but that's just giving back. And, and it's a continuation of giving back. It's a continuation 
of taking on the responsibility of making things different and bettering what we do. And again, that could be on a national level, it could be on a local level. I've truly chosen the local level because that's where I can make the most impact. Uh, but uh, the, the, the responsibility that we all should have on leadership is, is something that we can't minimize. There are a lot of coaches that will talk about being servant leaders, and their job as a coach is to serve the players that, they, that play for them. Uh, so servant leadership. They also talk about transformational leadership versus transactional leadership. Transactional leadership being, you know, do your job, uh, come in, do your job, and here you go, here's your role, or here's your job on this team, versus transformational in the sense of more mentorship and, hey, let's try to transform you and make you a better human. Um, so there's interesting dynamics when it comes to transactional leadership and transformational leadership, but I also want to get your thoughts on servant leadership. Do you think of yourself as a servant leader? Does that resonate with you, or do you think about your leadership style being a little different than that? You know, I, I think everybody has their own style, but I think there's just a broad brush that all those different parts become part of leadership. You know, you... You, you take people that you genuinely feel could you can exploit their leadership roles, and, and I don't say that in a negative way at all, uh, and there are people that you try to train, and then there are people that you have to accept the fact that they've reached a certain level and they're not going to go further, so you work with them very hard on trying to be the best they could be at that level. So I think it's a combination of everything. Is there someone that you know or someone you've read about that you look to for inspiration or mentorship when it comes to leadership? You know, Brian, I, I was, uh, w when, when I got into the real estate business in, in 1980, um, I was always surrounded by guys that were older than I am. And uh, to this day, most of the uh, leaders in our community were always older than, than, than I. So I think that I, there were a, a lot of mentors that I had, but in different areas. Mentors in business, mentors in banking, mentors in leadership, uh, mentors in, in being uh, in ethics. Uh, so I, I think that we all try to pick and choose, or at least I do, try to pick and choose those areas and then strive really hard to, uh, to, to, to be the best you could be in that area. I want to go back because there are themes of adversity, just quick basic adversity, whether it's your knee injury uh, in high school. Uh, I, wanna, I want you to sort of unpack that along the lines also with you sort of drop like, hey, I, I lost a friend when I was a senior in college, which is not that common. Um, and I'm curious if you link those two together or if you separate the two, but um, what was that experience like losing uh, a friend to cancer, which when you're a senior in college, you're 22 years old, you're you don't think that any, anyone's going to die. Um, and you, you just sort of are that, I, at least I can remember back when I was that age, it's like, you're Superman. Like, you can do no wrong. You, can, you, you just sort of are living in the moment. Did that, did that shift your course at all? Well, I, I think that everything um, in my life has led me to realize that we're all not Superman. And, and the vulnerability that we all had, you know, as you know, I had two kidney transplants. Uh, so you talk about adversity. Here I was. It was uh, 1980. I decided that it was uh, uh, time to get life insurance and uh, took a, a life insurance test and failed. Uh, and again, you know, to your point, what are you kidding? Failed? You know, it was just was unconceivable that I would that I would fail. Well, it turned out that a kidney failure. Um, and uh, in 1990, had a kidney transplant, and uh, seven years ago, had a second kidney transplant. So I think that. 
all of those areas is exactly the opposite of recognizing that we're all not Superman and we're all vulnerable and we all need to be able to appreciate what we have and be able to make sure that we're maximizing what we have to be able to not only for your family, for yourself, but for your community. Um, you know, uh, uh, Joy and I are very active now. We recently started a kidney center at, uh, at George Washington University. Uh, Washington, D.C. is the highest incidence of kidney failure in the country. And, and one of our passions, uh, because of what I've been through, is to be able to educate people and awareness of kidney disease. So it, it's the vulnerability that we all have that it's important for us to recognize, whether that's blowing your knee out when you're 15 years old, whether that's losing a dear friend in, in when you're a junior in college, uh, whether, that's, whether that's in the real estate business, 1980 was a really tough time in the real estate business, and I saw a lot of people go bankrupt, uh, whether it's the kidney side. So all that makes us realize that we are vulnerable, and how do we protect ourselves and our family from making sure that we live the life that, we, that are, that's important to us. I hear the word vulnerability, and I hear it in that, in that space where you're talking about, it's like, hey, we're vulnerable to bad things happening. You live long enough, bad things are going to happen, right? How do you think about vulnerability from a leadership standpoint? Uh, how do you think about that word? Um, just riff on that for me a little bit. Well, I, I think when you're a leader, you realize that we're all vulnerable to a variety of things, some that you control, something that you don't control. But but you have to have the, the fire in your belly to sit and say, even those things that I don't control, I will figure out a way of getting past that. Uh, you know, having kidney failure was something I couldn't control. Uh, but I realized that, you know what, I'm not going to let that slow me down. Uh, my uh, oldest daughter was three years old uh, when, when I had kidney failure. My youngest daughter was just born. I uh, just became a director of a bank. Uh, I just started my own real estate company, and here I was with kidney failure. So something that I couldn't control. But the determination, the leadership um, said, you know what, you'll figure out a way to do it. I went to a lot of people that were very close to me, and they gave me incredible support. Obviously, number one is my wife. And, um, and, and realize that I'll get through this. I'll get through this. My family will get through this. Do you think that uh, you were able to do that? I don't want to say better, but you think you were able to handle that in a, a better sense because you had just faced some adversity at a younger age and sort of things hadn't worked out completely as planned? Well, I think you, you appreciate things. And I think when you appreciate things, the next step of appreciation is not letting bad times change your life. And when you appreciate how good life is, uh, and being as fortunate as we are to live where we are, I'm not going to let anything get in my way from stopping me and being able to do what I want to do and reach the goals that I have. Goals change. Uh, the goals that I had at 20 years old different than the goals I have at 61 years old. But uh, that vulnerability gave me the appreciation of what I have and trying to teach that to others. Do you write those goals down? Occasionally. Occasionally I do, and occasionally I refer back to them. And during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me. Are um, those mantras, philosophies, values? A combination of all uh, things that I things that I've been through, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. It's not that big of a wallet, but it's a little little cheat sheet that I have in there. Well, I'm laughing because when I was in high school, I had uh, little pieces of paper in my wallet, but they were phone numbers because I was the only one that didn't have a cell phone. 
uh, of my friends, so I had pieces of paper with cell phone numbers on them. <laughs> I'm not trust ask me, you. Yeah, most of them were not girls. They were not, I wish I could tell you, yeah, I had all these girls' phone numbers. It was not the case, as your daughter can, can probably attest to. Um, I, I want to unpack the idea of going into business for yourself, uh, and, and maybe I said that the wrong way, uh, but going into business and, and real estate and, and banking, uh, and you sort of talk, talked a little bit about taking that risk. What was that like for you going for that? Um, and, and walk us through that process. Well, I, you know, back in 1980, when uh, uh, I, I took this job as a bookkeeper for a real estate company, Joy's a social worker, and uh, in 1981, uh, interest rates were at 21%. The, the market was terrible. The real estate market was terrible. And uh, I hadn't gotten paid for nine months. Uh, we were living off of Joy's salary, um, which is wonderful of, of the responsibility that she takes on as a social worker. It's unfortunately not the highest paid job. And we lived off of that for a, a, a long time. Um, but again, recognize that determination and hard work will pay off. And uh, worked really hard. Joy worked really hard, and uh, and we made it all work. Uh, again, unfortunately, in 1982, the guy that I worked for as a bookkeeper passed away suddenly. And uh, again, the real estate market was terrible, and um, I had a real easy decision to make, and that was change industries or go into business for yourself. So, I chose the route to go to business for myself, and uh, was able to. Over the years, uh, buy a first building that I leveraged into another building and another building, and uh, then, then like I said, got involved in the bank, and it's been it's been a great run. And what has that experience been like for you, from a leadership standpoint, from building a company, a culture, uh, all those all those good things? Well, you know, as as I said, when I was uh, fortunate enough to uh, give the commencement speech at Maryland a couple of years ago, that it's not about your GPA. Uh, because if it was about your GPA, I certainly wouldn't be chairman of a bank. Um, it's about the gut that you have and, and making sure that the, that leadership, those qualities, making sure that you become as much of an expert as you possibly can within the area that you choose. Don't do too many things and do it partial. Choose less and make it complete. Uh, it's the responsibility of giving back. It's the responsibility of taking on leadership roles. I don't care what age you are. Uh, at, in your religious organization or a local community organization, make a difference. And, and I think making a difference is, is key. When I was asked to serve on a board in 1987 uh, of a, uh, a community bank, uh, I had the idea of merging the two sister banks together. And the chairman of the bank said, okay, go figure it out. And, and I did. Uh, I didn't know anything about banking, but I knew accounting, I knew economics, and figured out a way to make it happen. And uh, it certainly wasn't perfect, but it was enough for us to be able to grow that bank to, uh, to what it turned into until we sold it in 1996. But uh, again, it's, it's taking the opportunities and making sure that you go the 100% distance. Are there three words that you would use to describe leadership? Uh, I would say responsibility, ethics, and making a difference. The ethics one and the middle one you brought up earlier as well. And you said others have taught you that as well. Is that something you learn from observation, you learn from reading, you learn from where do you think the ethics comes from? Uh, again, I, I go back to my mom and dad. Uh, my dad and mom both had the highest level of ethics and integrity. Um, we, we all can justify right and wrong, but I, I think that uh, more often than not, I, I fall on the right side than the wrong side. Uh, in that commencement speech I talked about, I said that the most important thing on your financial statement 
is at the top of your financial statement, that's your name. Uh, a lot of people are so obsessed with how much money you have and how much money you make and, and all that while being important, uh, there's no substitute for ethics. How do you think about legacy? Wow. Um, I think about it a lot, especially every day that you get older. Uh, I think about it in business. I think about it with my family. Uh, now having my first grandchild, it's, uh, that's all part of making sure that you could leave your name in the best way that you can. Uh, and, and again, I say that both in business and on the personal side. Yeah, legacy is so fascinating to me because there, you know, there are studies done that three generations, like if, if you know, we, we don't remember three generations above us. So, you know, we, we know our parents, we know our, or actually, I guess four, so we know our parents, we know our grandparents, we know our, maybe our great-grandparents, but beyond our great-grandparents, we don't really know. Um, but the notion of leaving the place a little better than we found it, the notion of uh, creating opportunities maybe for people um, that are in future generations seems to stick with people. And when I work with athletes, we talk about legacy all the time because they have such a short window to make an impact. And you talked about, like, one thing that I would central, I, I would try to, when I hear you talk, there's a lot about making an impact, whether it's making an impact with, you know, the cancer societies, making an impact on a business, making an impact, bookkeeping, um, the idea of making an impact is something you value. But I'm fascinated by the idea of legacy because um, I think it's something that we all care about. Uh, yet, when you really think about it, it, it does, it, it kind of goes away. And it, it, it's, it's sad, but it's also true. I mean, like, there's no denying it. It's sad, it's true, but it is what it is. Yeah. And, and there's nothing I'm going to do about it. And you just hope that my, my children and my grandchildren, hope, God willing, my great-grandchildren will know who I am and know what I stand for and know the same thing about joy and, and the impact that we've made, both within our family lives and within the community. And if I can accomplish that to the great-grandchild level, that's, that's good by me. Yeah, that would be good. And, and maybe the legacy is actually the shared values or, or the stories that maybe get passed down along the way and, and that notion of doing the right thing. And, and, and if we all take on that responsibility or obligation as leaders uh, to do the right thing and then to pass that down to our kids and they pass it down, well, maybe the world will be a little bit better. Um, I think that's very true. I, I think that, as I mentioned, that what the values that I inherited from my parents, I'm sure they inherited from their parents. And, and therefore, if I can continue to instill those values in my children and my children to my grandchildren, then, then I've succeeded. Uh, maybe three generations will never know who Ron Paul is but, or was, but they'll hope, uh, hopefully be able to say that you know he set the trend to be able to make a difference. I want to shift gears a little bit. So from a performance standpoint, I, you know I'm obsessed with performance, and, and I, it's something I think about all the time. And we had lunch a couple months back, uh, and we were starting to talk about performance. And for you, there's performance when it comes to negotiation. There's performance when it comes to being in a room uh, or having to speak uh, to employees. What do you think about that word performance, and how do you prepare yourself to perform, and what is your mindset like when you are performing? Uh, I think the word genuine, you can't fake passion. And when I get up in front of a group, and whether I'm talking about the kidney uh, center, or I'm talking about the bank, or my real estate company, or any other organizations, I believe so strongly in what I do that I just try to make it as genuine as I could be and believe that that'll come across 
in the right way. And if it doesn't, then too bad for those that are listening. Uh, but uh, but I could tell you that uh, my 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 words are genuine, and that's what I strive for in in all these presentations. And I give a lot to them. I, I travel around the country, talk giving roadshow presentations on Eagle Bank, and I'm very proud of what Eagle Bank stands for, and I'm proud of what we've accomplished, and that comes across uh, as passionately as I as I believe in it. Was that ability to be genuine or authentic something that you were able to do when you were younger? Is that something you've been able to cultivate as you've gotten more experienced? Uh, I think it's, I, I, again, I think it's in my DNA. Uh, I don't think that it's something I cultivated. I think that it's something that I just genuinely believe in. And I think that there are people that are great public speakers and there are people that can stand up and talk about anything and just come across as sounding brilliant. I'm never going to be one of those people, but I'm going to be one that's going to be able to talk from the heart. You've talked a lot about certain things being in your DNA and certain things sort of being wired in you. What's one thing in you that has changed or has shifted uh, over the years um, that maybe you weren't built with or, or wired with in high school or college? Is there, is there something that has shifted or changed? Brian, I hate to say it, but I'm probably the same person I was when I was 18 years old. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe matured, I don't know. Some people would argue that. But, but I think that uh, what I stand for today and the passion that I have for all the things we've talked about, leadership, giving back, community, making a difference, those are all the things that I could sit and tell you that uh, way back when uh, I, I had then too. All right, I'm going to push you a little bit on that. So from a leadership standpoint, has there been a mistake that you've made uh, in, in your tenure uh, or in your history of being a leader that you made that mistake and you grew as a result of, of, of making the mistake? Absolutely. Um, loyalty is a, is a very, very big part of, of my DNA. Um, and, and you could be loyal to a fault. Um, and, and loyalty isn't necessarily just about individual relationships. It could be loyalty about a particular project. And there are certainly deals that I've done that I've very believed a lot in and was very loyal to that as hard as I pushed, it didn't work out. Um, so, you know, maybe being a little bit more objective is something that uh, I would probably be better off with. Awesome. I look at that and I hear, so I had a conversation with somebody from the San Antonio Spurs organization. And I'm like, all right, what's the secret sauce? Give it to me. Like, you guys, you know, the Spurs and the Patriots, if you look at sports, at least in the U.S., they're the two standards right now. He said the Spurs, the two things that they, they, you must have if you're going to come into our organization, you have to care and you have to be competitive. So you have to be caring and you have to be competitive. And then I, I sort of challenged him a little bit. I said, okay, caring and competitive. I said, but you guys have changed the way you've played over the years. You've done different things. You've gone to playing fast, to playing with a low post player, to spreading it out. How does that all operate? He goes, okay, so baseline stuff is caring and competitive. That's foundational. That's fundamental. If you're not caring and competitive, you're not going to work here. But we also are open-minded to shifting and adapting and adjusting and, and doing things differently. And we're curious and we're constantly trying to evolve and change and shift. And when I hear you say, I'm still the same person, I hear it from a values standpoint. The values and principles that were taught to me from a young age around what it means to be a leader, what it means to serve and help other people, what it means to do the right thing, you feel like are embedded in you and have been embedded in you at, since you were 18 years old. But the 
uh, idea of loyalty and objectivity and maybe some things that have to shift and change to me is like what the Spurs do with their system, which is their system has to evolve. It has to change. Technology changes in your business. Um, you know, there's all kinds of things that you have to constantly adapt and adjust. So I'm curious how you toggle with, these are my values. These are my principles. I haven't changed with also the notion of, I'm sure your business has taken on many iterations throughout the years and you've gone in different directions and evolved with the market and what was going on in the 80s, changes to the 90s, changes to the thousands, changes to whatever, and now the tens or whatever they call them. How do you think about that? And is that a good analogy or, or do you sort of see things differently than that? Wonderful discussion. Um, you know, pe people look at uh, Coach Belichick when you stand on the sidelines and you talk about intensity. Uh, to me, that's all passion. And, and I think the passion, the word passion is the 50,000-foot word to many of the topics that you just talk about. If you have passion, you have competitive in your belly. If you have compassion, you have ethics. You have all the different parts. So to me, the passion part of what you're doing is critical. And, and you know, I'm not, I'm not, there are things that I would love to do that I might not have the time to do. But it's really because I don't have the time to create that passion for that particular item. It could be sports. It could be another business. It could be a, a nonprofit. And I realize that. And that's where I said before is that for me, I would rather more is less. So I would rather own more of a building than own a lot of buildings. Uh, I would rather be chairman of the organization than just be somebody on the board. Because for me... Putting in that passion, giving 100% of what you have, that to me is what leads to the competitive side and ultimately leads to the success, however you define success. All right, so let's go to the passion for a minute. So passion, immensely important. I don't think anyone's ever really been successful without that. Uh, but there have also been people that have been immensely passionate in this world that have done awful things. Adolf Hitler, uh, the founders of Enron, um, you know, they're immensely passionate about what they're doing but they lack purpose um, in what they're doing. And I think um, maybe they even had purpose, but it wasn't purpose that we would want. How do you think about purpose as it relates with or to passion? A lot of it comes down to your definition of success. Uh, I'm sure that I, I won't even use Adolf Hitler to give the acknowledgement. But if you look at a Kenneth Lay, you know, in his mind, he was successful. Uh, those that have done bad things, in their mind, their passion led to the success. That's not what you and I would define as success. So one always has to overlay the ethics with the passion. But you hope that people that are passionate have the right ethics and therefore will be successful. I'm sure that all the people that you're referring to that did bad things, in their mind, they were successful. 100%. Give me your definition of success. Everything is different. In business, it's, it's more than just financial, although financial is certainly a big part of it. Uh, and at Eagle Bank, it's, it's um, paid for by the shareholders, so clearly their interest is earnings per share. But for my own personal level of success, it's mentoring those in the bank that have the opportunity to hopefully take over my job one day. So the, there's, there's a lot of definitions of success. Again, as you get older, think about legacy. Those definitions change. You talked about owning more of the building than less, being, you know, chairman of the board, all, all those sort of things. I'm curious what you think about control. Yeah, a lot of it is control. Uh, and a lot of it is control, not necessarily in the bad word of control, 
but it's controlled in the sense that if you believe that you can make a difference, it's important for you to have the control. And control might be with your board. Uh, and control isn't necessarily determining what your board should vote for, but it's working with your board to make sure that they understand where you're coming from. They might vote against what you're su suggesting, but at least you have the position to be able to give an influence uh, uh, the, the, the part of what you're trying to implement. And I'm curious also what you think about perfection. I am a perfectionist to the ultimate, and you could uh, talk to my kids and joy about that, and uh, there's, there's nothing that substitutes for perfection in my mind. What do you think of it? It's a good quality, and it's a horrible quality. And it's a horrible quality for those that are around you, and it's a horrible quality sometimes within yourself because you're not going to let go until you're satisfied that what you've done is as best as you possibly can do. A lot of that does lead to success. Um, but, but I can tell you that perfection, I think, is a very big part. I, I, I said earlier, if you're going to do it, do it right or don't do it at all. And you might wind up doing less of things. For instance, I would rather own one building than own 10% of 10 buildings. Why? Because I can control that one building and make it as perfect as I think it should be. It might not be as perfect as others, but at least it will satisfy what I'm trying to accomplish. You said it's a good thing and a bad thing. How is it a bad thing? It's a bad thing because you wind up spending a lot of time on a lot of things that might be immaterial. Uh, you know, I'm the guy who walks around some of my buildings and checks out what the light bulbs are and walks into the heating and air conditioning room, make sure it's clean. Uh, is that productive time? Probably not, but it's, it fits me. But it's the attention to detail. It's the neuroticism to make sure that things are done the right way. I've never met a head coach. I should, I should rephrase that. I've never met a great head coach who does not have that. Um, and to, the, to that point, I study elite, uh, whether it's athlete, CEO. It, I'm obsessed with elite. I was listening to Coach Calipari's podcast the other day, and he was talking to Anthony Davis. And for those who don't know Anthony Davis in the NBA, he's a top five, maybe top ten player. And he said to Anthony, he said, you were a perfectionist your one year that you were at Kentucky, and so was Michael. And he was referring to Michael K. Gilchrist, who also plays in the NBA. He said, you guys, would, you wouldn't stop doing things until they were right. Um, and athletes, when I work with them, when I work with pros, almost all of them say I'm a perfectionist. The fascinating thing about perfectionists are they can never achieve what they want to achieve. So if I want to be a psychologist or a doctor or a lawyer, there's actually a path to become that. Whereas perfectionists, there is no path. It's actually not a possible path. Yet so many successful people claim to have that. So we can riff on perfectionism for a long time, but I'm glad that you're open and honest about it because I think a lot of times people tell everyone, oh, don't be perfect, don't worry about being perfect. And I think they miss some of the nuance and the attention to detail that's necessary to achieve success, however you define success, you need that attention to nuance and that attention to detail. I'm curious what you're like when you're, when you're on that road show and you're giving those presentations. Does the perfectionism go away in those moments? Is that different for you than when you're in the building looking at the light bulbs and you know, the HVAC systems and all that sort of stuff? You know, again, I think it comes back to your definition of success. If I was a perfectionist, I would have graduated with a 4.0. Yeah. I didn't. Yeah, why were you not... Why were you not that way when it came to, you said, you know, GPA-wise, I, I was not exceptional. Why were you not that way when it came to, to GPA? Because, because to me, that wasn't my definition of success. Got it. My definition of success was raising more money 
for the dance marathon in the American Cancer Society. That's going to be done the right way, and I'm not going to, I'm going to leave no stone unturned until it's right. But for the things that are not of great value to my own fulfillment, I don't need to be perfect at. That's right. And, and there, there are people, you know, playing golf, there are people that are sitting and saying, I'm going to be the best putter I can be. But you know what? If I can hit the ball down the middle of the fairway, that's good enough. 250 yards is good enough. It doesn't have to be 280 yards, but I'm going to perfect putting. So their definition of success is in the putting side, not necessarily the drive side. My definition of success and my definition of perfection is making sure that everything I touch, I do as good of a job as I possibly can. Beautiful. John Wooden's definition for success is knowing that I did the best I could with what I have, essentially. And it's like the old adage when we're kids, try your hardest. It's, it's not that complicated. There, is, there isn't this like magic secret sauce other than something you care about, be passionate about it, and then try your ass off to get to where you want to go. Um, I'm curious about the mentorship piece. When you're mentoring other people, is that what you try to pull out of them? Is like, what are you passionate about? And then how do we develop a system or a process to allow you to be the best version of yourself? And before I answer that, the one thing I do want to mention, and when it relates to perfection, is that you also have to work really, really hard on when to stop. Mm. And too many times people beat themselves up because, you know, they're, they're getting on the foul line and then they're doing 98 out of 100 and that's not good enough for them. And therefore, they're taking the eye off some other things that they might be able to be doing because 98 is pretty damn good. So we all have to be able to sit and say, when is enough enough when it comes to perfection? Um, so Let's, Let me go back on that because you just hit something that's so, it's, it's at the core and the foundation of what I do and how I do it. So I actually believe that perfectionism is massively important to preparation. I think fear of failure is massively important to preparation. I think neuroticism is massively important to preparation. But there comes a time where we have to perform, where now it's not about being neurotic, it's actually having a little narcissism. Now it's not about fearing failure, it's actually about being fearless. Now it's not about being perfect, it's actually about being adaptable. And if we realize that we need to shift from our preparation mindset to our performance mindset, and have that performance mindset and bring that performance mindset out more often, we're going to be better off because I think you hit the nail on the head, which is so many people stay making things so perfect that they become paralyzed and they never actually get the thing out there. So it's like writing a book. So many people are so meticulous on it being perfect that they never actually get it to the editor to, to publish it. Or I'm sure there are deals. It's like, all right, this is perfect. And sometimes you have to take an imperfect deal and adapt and adjust and still make it work for whatever it is that you need to make it work for. But the preparation should still be there. The attention to detail when we're preparing still needs to be there. Um, that's at least how I think about it. Absolutely right. Because otherwise, A, you drive yourself crazy. Yeah. And B, I think you miss other opportunities. Uh, just to your point, you, you, you have to prepare and you're going to give it all that you prepare for, but you can't be obsessive on that. And we're all obsessive. I mean, anybody that's an A personality is obsessive. But you have to try really hard as to when to shut that off. Yeah, I think obsession is a, uh, it, 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 once again, it's, a, it's seen as a negative word. Uh, in some ways, perfectionism is seen as a negative word. But if you're going to want to go toward whatever your definition, if you want to be the best mom on the planet, you have to be obsessed with your kids. Um, like, you have to, and you have to be attention to detail and make sure like, things are the same way. If, if you want to be the best janitor, uh, and I've seen people do this. Like, I've seen people in extreme blue-collar jobs who are exceptional at what they do because they're, they're attention to detail and they want things to be done a certain way. The, 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 the only flaw with that is, again, what you're sacrificing 
by making sure that you've done the best you can be. So, you know, that, that electrician that is going to be the ultimate master electrician, well, you know what, maybe he could be another, maybe he could be doing volunteer work. So he could be mastering that too. So you, there's that balance that you have to play all the time. I love it. And, and, and as I think about balance, it's where am I spending my energy? How do I want to spend my energy? Um, because we have a limited amount of energy that we actually have in a day. Um, and where am I focusing my energy, I think, is, is massive. All right, I want to sort of close the book uh, for you a little bit and do something that I call preferences. So these are one-hitters. You pick one. So it's which one do you prefer? So do you, pref do you prefer preparation or performance? Performance. Do you, do you prefer yes sir employees or why employees? Why employees? That's an easy one for you. Why do you underline react like that? underline why? Well, because I I, I I will tell you, and I use I use um, uh, my buildings as an example all the time. When I go to look to buy another building, I don't walk around with the owner of the building. I walk around with the engineer of the building. Why do I walk around the engineer of the building? Who knows the building more than the engineer? Owner doesn't know the building. The engineer does. So asking those questions of why. You just learn an enormous amount of information. Uh, I'm very active uh, in the uh, Matchbox uh, uh, food franchise, and just yesterday I was there, and I was one of the uh, one of the servers, and I was just sitting and asking questions. I didn't go to the general manager. I asked the, the the server. I said, "Tell me what they like. Tell me what they don't like. What's good? What's bad?" Man, I walked out of there with such information. It was awesome. The bank is the exact same thing. Love it. Curiosity is one of the biggest links to success. Uh, curiosity, the one thing we got to get our kids doing more in school is get them more curious. Right? And I would tell you, if there's one thing for us to be able to focus on with our kids is communication skills. Mm. And, and I will tell you that I spend a lot of time mentoring that. We have a phrase in the bank that if it, if it takes more than three sentences, don't put it in an email, pick up the phone. And I think that the communication skills that the millennials and now younger is something that we're sacrificing and we need to get away from. That's funny you say that because my parents always told me to shut up when I was younger and they told me to stop talking and especially to stop talking to adults a certain way. I knew uh, your parents well enough. It was way more than three sentences. Yeah, yeah they right? were telling me I was talking too much. I was communicating too much. Uh, system or autonomy? Autonomy. This is, this is an easy one for you. Cheat and win or lose while being honest. I don't even have to answer. Well, you know why that's so in, such an easy one for you? It, and it's so interesting. That is not an easy one for athletes. Athletes, I've had many athletes answer it, cheat and win. Many athletes. Um, and I just think it's different. Um, and even coaches struggle with that. Um, sports, because what's the definition of cheating? Is it grabbing a guy's jersey when he's, you know, when he's screening? Uh, is it you know, fouling a guy, what's the definition of cheating? But it's interesting when I ask people outside of sports, a lot of them, it's, it's so clear, like, what cheating is and what it's not. Well, because I think it comes back to ethics, uh, and I think that, that ethics in business is an ongoing process. We're in sports. It's what happened at the end of that game. Absolutely. It's the win and loss. It's a lot different than the earnings per share that take over a course of a year. Long game versus short game, and I think the best sports organizations play the long game. Yeah, I've always said, uh, it, it literally, we've, I've given 19 annual report speeches for our uh, annual reports uh, every single time. It's we're here for the long run, we're not here for the sprint. And the bet, it's, it's so simple, and it's so profound. Uh, perfection or progression? Progression. Is that, would you have answered it that way at 25, 30? Probably. 
So progression is always something you've also valued tremendously. Yeah, because I think that you, again, we're back to the same thing. We're, we're here for the marathon, not for the sprint. Most valuable player or most improved player? I would, uh, I would say certainly initially most improved player, but long-term most valuable player. Resume or eulogy? Eulogy. That was a pretty easy one for you, too. Well, it comes back to the legacy side. Your generation or your parents' generation? My generation. Your generation or your kids' generation? My generation. Evaluations or descriptions? Evaluations. Positive feedback or negative feedback? Negative feedback. Interesting one. Why? Uh, I think it helps you improve. Uh, I'm always looking for people to tell me what I did wrong. And, and it's just, it's all part of, as long as it's being objective, I, I, I cherish people. To, it goes back to the question of why. Um, I, I want to I know what I can do better. Culture or talent? Culture. Momentum or the moment? Momentum. Pumped up or calm down? Pumped up. Grit or grind? Grit. Liked or respected? Respected. Transformational leadership or transactional leadership? Transformational. Love winning or hate losing? Love winning. Risk taker or rule follower? Risk taker. Would you rather be, a, and you can try to think about this in your business world and it's sort of a sport analogy, starter on a losing team or a towel waver on a winning team? I'd be, rather be a starter on a losing team. You want to make that impact and, and be involved. I want to be that leader to see how I can help turn it around. You know, I had an athlete answer it the same way. They said, I want to, I, I'm going to, you know what? It was actually, I take it back. It was a CEO. And he said, no, I'm going to go to that losing team and I'm going to turn it around. There's nothing more challenging. There's nothing more. And again, it doesn't necessarily have to be in business. It, it could be taking somebody that might not have the ethics that you think they should have, taking somebody that doesn't have the fire in the belly and try to figure out how to get it out of them. And so to me, to me, being a starter on a losing team and ultimately seeing that losing team being successful is the greatest feeling in the world. It's so, it's so awesome. I feel the same way. And it's one of the reasons when I work with teams that are losing, I'm like, man, this is like, this is an opportunity to paint a masterpiece. Like, what's better than this coming from the bottom and rising? Like, that's it. Uh, but when you're in the bottom, it sucks. And like... When you're on a losing team and that culture, it is so hard to develop culture when you're losing. That's and why I give up golf because I figure I'm never going to perfect it, so I'm done. <laughs> we'll get out. We'll get out there. I, I still have never played with you, and that is one of my. It's it's got to be on a bucket list somewhere to, to see you out there and and give you uh, give you some thoughts. Um, balance or specific obsession. Obsession. Fear of failure or fearlessness. Fearlessness. Do you disassociate from pressure or embrace it? Embrace it. Easy one for you. You embrace it. How do you think about pressure? I, I look at it as not pressure. I look at it as a challenge. The pressure is just you being able to justify in your mind that you have a challenge and you'll figure out a way to get through it. Where does pressure come from? Oh, everyday life. Everyday life and within yourself. I'm constantly putting pressure on myself. Do you prefer your head or your gut? My gut. Instinct. All right. Yeah. That's it. 
Uh, we talked for a while. I appreciate the time. I know you're a busy guy. Ron and I tried to get together multiple times. Ron kept saying, I can't. I got to go. And, and I'm like, I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to make it happen. So I'm just happy we got to make this happen. Uh, I've known Ron my whole life pretty much. Um, I'm good friends with his daughter, Julie, and uh, they've been lifelong friends of ours. And I, I learned some stuff about you today that I didn't know. So it's amazing what you can do when you have an hour to sit down and actually just have conversation. It goes back to your comment earlier about pick up the damn phone and actually communicate with each other because to me, that's how we learn. And look, YouTube is a great tool. This podcast is a great tool, but nothing beats human interaction one-on-one in a quiet space where you can actually ask questions and find out about another human. And um, I appreciate you being so open, so honest, so candid and sharing all your perspective. I want to give you an opportunity to plug the things that you're involved with um, and you can take that wherever you want to take it. I know you've got your hands in a lot of different things and you mentioned them today, but if people want to find out more about things that you're passionate about, where can they do that? Uh, most I'm passionate about right now is the uh, Ron and Joy Paul Kidney Center at George Washington University. Uh, as mentioned earlier, highest incidence of kidney failure in the uh, countries in Washington, D.C. Uh, as, as somebody that was in good shape and, and, and good life and proper eating, Developing kidney disease was a devastating thing for me. The number of people on dialysis we can avoid, we can eliminate, we can reduce. Uh, so I ask everybody that's listening to this to be able to go out, take a urine test, take a blood test, take a, a, a blood pressure test, see if you have kidney failure, uh, see if you have things that could be avoided. But to me, that's something that we've got to get into, being hooked up to a machine for 20 hours a week on dialysis is not something that's productive for you, your family, and the country. Well, Grandpa Ron, uh, look forward to spending another 61 years with you. Um, we're going to make that happen. Um, and seeing your great-grandkids grow up and be great citizens. And I uh, appreciate you coming on. Brian, thank you for the opportunity. I'm proud of you.